I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. This is the New Year's session 2020. Can you be homesick for a place that you have never dwelled? Can you, or could you, desire something you've never experienced or never tasted? What we long for, what we want, we have some confidence it's worth the trouble to meet and experience unite with, consume that longed-for thing. It could be confidence that comes from hearsay. It could be a confidence that rests in trust in someone whose word we respect. Can you be homesick for a place that you have never dwelled? When we read or hear about enlightenment, awakening, release from suffering, or the potential of a life made meaningful through unfolding the virtues of the heart, or we have an experience out of the ordinary, is that the first spark? Is that the impetus for turning towards the path? That first encounter is that a new dawn of possibility, a new option for living out our days and years. What we are actually after given an image, the way we intuited we could live, affirmed and articulated. This is one scenario for the way things be. It's proposed that we wander in confusion, intoxicated with mistaken identity, drunk with desire for things that can actually never quench our thirst. So in your sitting and in your observation of the chain-like process of affliction, or inaccurate, reflexive thought and the emotions that accompany that, is there any evidence that it would just stop on its own? I don't see any evidence of that. It's kind of amazing. Delusion will perpetuate itself endlessly. It will just keep on going. If there's no intervention, it will roll on forever. No intervention, no awareness, no compassion. You could think of it like a psychic virus that there's just no immunization for yet in your experience. It keeps reproducing itself. Or like a bad YouTube video gone viral on perpetual repeat. So the proposition is that each of us wanders lost and you know in the scriptures you find things like living beings are bobbing in the ocean of birth and death endlessly 
mostly struggling, barely coping with brief interludes of pleasure and rest. Ad infinitum doing our desire dance. But then in this, this proposition, there's the spark. There's the dawning. There's the pivot. There's the remembering. Is that how it is? That we've been or we were confused, lost, living from the perspective of the pursuit of happiness, a futile life, devoid of wisdom and compassion, and then we join the camp of the wise ones. We're on the A-team. We're let in on the secret. We're saved. Is this the inside scoop of what's really going on here? Well, if so, then the spark is of unspeakable value. Just think about that. If delusion rolls on endlessly and has no means of interrupting itself, and it depends on actually being able to say, this is delusion, then that spark is of immense value, precious beyond praise. If unhappiness and confused, painful living is a cold night stretching on with no end, then a spark in that cold night is immense. If you've ever done a darkness uh, retreat, it's very interesting. Um, I found that the smallest pixel of light has an enormous effect. The smallest pixel of light, little pin hole in the window, or a little LED on a device. That smallest pixel of light swallows up the dark to a surprising degree. And you find it's actually very difficult to completely shut out the light. You have to go to great, great measures to keep it from getting in. And so the proposition that this is akin to one word of the teaching, one kind act, one moment of clear mind, how large is that? There is some relationship between the particular world we experience and the beliefs, concepts, and attitudes we have toward it. And just how tight that relationship is, is a worthwhile investigation. Some relationship between the world we inhabit, that nobody else can inhabit, and the beliefs and concepts and attitudes, the experience we have of it. Just how tight, how intimate is that relationship? There is neither one zendo nor many zendos. There's neither one hogan nor many hogans. What comes first, your experience of the world or the world? What do we mean anyway when we say world? 
what are you referring to that's actual and what are you referring to that's Zen people are invited to ask what's uncommon to ask. How do you play an iron flute with no holes? Throughout heaven and earth, not a single hair can be inserted. How do you insert it? Wherever you go, you breathe in your own fragrance. How tight is the relationship between our background of impressions and memories and proclivities and biases and the world we experience. Uh, Dogen, during his training with his beloved teacher, Rujin, there's actually a text, I believe it's called the Hokkoji or Hokkyoji, and its historical accuracy is debated among people who like to debate such things. Um, but it's him just asking questions of his teacher. And some of them would surprise you. Like, wow, really? This is the Dogen? That's all profound? And he's, he's asking these questions that I just think are kind of common sense. But anyway, he was an exemplary student. So he asked his teacher uh, questions not from his accumulated knowledge, but from a fresh state of mind. Maybe he didn't know something. And one of the questions he asked, he said, what's the difference between Zen meditation and meaning Zen, excuse me, meaning life lived with Zen heart? What's the difference between Zen meditation and the meditation done by other schools? It's a pretty straightforward question in a way. You know, what's the difference between Theravadan meditation and what they do in Vajrayana? And his teacher, Rujing, said, the meditation of our school is based on great compassion and the vow to save all beings. So with, with any uh, Zen text, we're invited to meet what meets us directly and also be willing to peer a little deeper. Assume there's more than immediately hits our understanding. So Zen meditation does not belong to Zen meditation. Wouldn't we say wherever great compassion is manifesting, there is Zen meditation? Or do we kind of have the corner? Have we dominated the market of great compassion and only people who kind of sit in these rows are manifesting great compassion. I hope nobody believes that. So dressing a wound is Zen meditation. Kissing a cheek is Zen meditation. Scooping up dog shit. Cutting a leak. And you could do these things with resentment or distraction. We are free to live a life on autopilot self-centeredness. We're free to roam hungry for the next affirmation, the next triumph over, the next hit, the next opportunity to tune out. Wherever there is great compassion, there is Zen meditation. 
As soon as you say true, the false arises. Right? Someone's in a room and they get praised. Wow, you are, you are so beautiful. Immediately, the ugly is given rise to. We designate great and the mediocre is articulated. Was it there before that or not? What does it depend on? A memory becomes a standard, becomes an expectation, becomes a colored lens. So is love or compassion something that comes and goes from your life like a flaky lover? Or like a brief breeze on one of those really hot, sweltering days? Or here's a rare question. Why does it come and go? Why does love and compassion come and go? Some more from uh, David White. And this is a section called Unrequited. And he's talking about unrequited love. And I invite you to have a broad definition of love so that you have some ability to relate to what he's saying. Unrequited love is the love human beings experience most of the time. The very need to be fully requited may be to turn from the possibilities of love itself. Men and women have always had difficulty with the way a love returned hardly ever resembles a love given. But unrequited love may be the form that love mostly takes. For what affection is ever returned over time in the same measure or quality with which it is given? Every man or woman loves differently and uniquely, and each of us holds different dreams and hopes and falls in love or is the object of love at a very specific threshold in a very particular life where very, very particular qualities are needed for the next few years of our existence. What other human being could ever love us as we need to be loved? And whom could we know so well and so intimately through all the twists and turns of a given life that we could show them exactly the continuous and appropriate form of affection they need? Requited love may happen, but it is a beautiful temporary, a seasonal blessing the aligning of stars not too often in the same quarter of the heavens. An astonishing blessing. But it is a harvest coming once only in a long cycle, and a burden to the mind and the imagination when we set that dynamic as the state to which we must always return in order to feel ourselves in a true, consistent, loving relationship. Whether our affections are caught in romantic love, trying to see our neighbors as ourselves, or trying to love a great but distant God, our love rarely seems to be returned in the mode that it is given. That gift is returned in ways that, to begin with, we rarely recognize. Human beings live in disappointment and a self-appointed imprisonment 
when they refuse to love unless they are loved the self-same way in return. Human beings live in disappointment and a self-appointed imprisonment when they refuse to love unless they are loved the self-same way in return. It is the burden of marriage, the difficult invitation at the heart of parenting, and the central difficulty in our relationship with any imagined living future. The great discipline seems to be giving up wanting to control the manner in which we are requited and to forego the natural disappointment that flows from expecting an exact and measured reciprocation from a partner, from a child, from our hopes of a loving God. We seem to have been born into a world where love, except for brilliant, exceptional moments, seems to exist from one side only, ours. And that may be the difficulty and the revelation and the gift to see love as the ultimate letting go and through the doorway of that affection make the most difficult sacrifice of all, giving away the very thing we want to hold forever. So one who commits to constancy in offering internally and externally great compassion uh, to live Zen meditation is called a bodhisattva. People are very difficult. Many of them offend our sensibilities, our nose sensibilities, our eye sensibilities, our mind sensibilities. They don't recognize, not to mention, requite our generosity. They consistently fail to see how spiritual, gifted, good-looking, and important we are. Even if we want to help them, they often don't want to be helped. I see this relationship in my own heart. People, and as you hear this, you watch your own mind, which direction does the finger point? People say they want to go get well, and then they go eat poison. Other people are very difficult. As long as they remain other, they continue to be so, even when they are not other. This person is very difficult. This person is full of or at least not exempted from contradiction. Uh, years ago, we had an incontinent dog named Mickey, and he was one of our first residents. And he was a beloved Sangha member. We used to put monk's robes on him and little turkey costumes. And he would come in here and maybe sit in your lap or fart on the zabuton next to you or lick the haishiki. Things were really serious around here in those days, so it was like, I mean, talk about Bodhisattva, Mickey. Yeah. So I remember dozens of nights after reciting Tori Zenji's Bodhisattva vow, resident after resident of the men's dorm would pretend not to see 
and gracefully step over Mickey's fragrant Gatorade yellow puddle of pish that welcomed us at the entranceway. And perhaps one could find compassion in that. It was hard to find. You had to find a whole bunch of paper towels. <laughs> we used to uh, steam clean the residence area about every three months, trying to get the smell out. Mickey was good for our practice. So the, this bodhisattva vow, this bodhisattva, it is an ideal, isn't it? An ideal is not something we have to discard. It's something we, we relate to maturely. This visionary, impossibly vast, broken open heart of the bodhisattva vow it touches something, it resonates something. It's not sentimental. It's not dualistic. It's not me becoming the ultimate good-doer and subjecting the world to myself. It's not the peak of martyrdom. If we are that moment of bodhisattva, or many moments of bodhisattva, or perhaps such a thing exists as a fully converted and enfleshed evidence of bodhisattva in this world, it's informed by, by wisdom. People are very difficult. How can you continue to help without discrimination, with equanimity, all these difficult people? Have you ever had a kind of job like that where people from the whole spectrum come forward to you? It's a really good situation to be in. informed by the wisdom of shunyata. Shunyata. I love, that's a beautiful word. It means something like zeroness. Shunyata. We've translated that as emptiness, for better or worse. So what we're praising each morning as we chant the Heart Sutra, it's shunyata praising shunyata. Robert Aiken Roshi once said that, or actually he wrote, that if a Zen teacher tries to explain emptiness, a real student gets up and leaves the room. It's a little dramatic. She could have just groaned, oh, or just scratch her forehead, squint her eyes at the teacher, make the same point. I'm going to read more from um, Vimalakirti. And this is a very, very teaching. Uh, teachings addressing what does it mean to be a bodhisattva if it's not a sentimental, ultimate uh, do-gooder. So emptiness, shunyata, does not mean not existing. Not existing and existing share the same confusion. The Tibetan tradition has this lovely saying, to cling to things as real is stupid, but to cling to things as empty is even stupider. 
so about indirect experience. And you could do this contemplation with you yourself right now, probably you're a living being. If you could remove all the memories, the assumptions, the associations, the expectations, and the beliefs, indirect experience, what is a living being? You think about someone that's dear to you. Even if they're right in front of you, often we are assembling a chain of memories. And if the sum total of that memories tilts over into pleasant, then we feel affection for that person. And if the sum total of those memories, those feelings in the body are unpleasant, we tend to associate or feel dislike for that person. But what is in sobered, unsentimental, unimagined experience? What is a living being? That's the question being asked. Dharma asks us to ask questions that are usually not asked. Why not? So a living being. Is a living being a moment? How long is a moment? The interior of someone. And you could consider how often you, I, live in assumption about someone else's interior. It's like a cloud that hangs over a group of people. All the assumptions. The interior of someone, their feelings, beliefs, moods, their experience. How much access do you have to that? Mind is fluid. Moods are shifty. Feelings are slippery. I find that my own interior is more often than not a real mystery. I don't know what I'm feeling. I'm not clear on what my mood is, what my belief is, who I am. Our own interior life is a moving target, a kind of quantum event. It seems like there's something so absolute about it, so, so much finality in our state of mind, our state of being. And then as soon as we look closely, there's nothing to touch. It becomes something else. If we look closely. So this is not saying bodhisattvas dwell in some condition that people aren't real. People aren't real. Beings are not real. That was easy. It's not saying bodhisattvas uh, ignore people and pretend they're not there. Uh, that, would be, that would be a little too, that would be a cheap liberation. The teaching of shunyata is an invitation for us to really look. To really look. In what way are they there? 
In what way are living beings there? You'd think that we really look at life. But what is it to really look? We're very busy. We're very busy. We, we rarely uh, hold still. And often when we hold still, we're um, withdrawing from life rather than zooming into its actuality. So this is um, the chapter uh, regarding living beings from the Vimalakirti Sutra. So it might be useful to make a distinction between ordinary folks as practicing bodhisattvas and the realized bodhisattva. So here, uh, Manjushri and Vimalakirti are, are talking about, let's say, the fully ripened bodhisattva, that, that beautiful ideal. At that time, Manjushri asked Vimalakirti, how does the bodhisattva regard living beings? Vimalakirti replied, as a conjurer looks on the beings he conjures up, thus does the bodhisattva regard living beings. That right there, how often do you conjure somebody up? Before even speaking to them, you've got them in your little thimble. Based on what? We dream people up. They dream up, they dream up us into the one who's dreaming them up. How does the Bodhisattva regard living beings? As the wise view the moon in the water, or a face or form seen in a mirror, as shimmers of heat in a torrid season, as the echo that follows a cry, as clouds in the sky, as foam on the water, bubbles on the water, as a thing no firmer than the trunk of the plantain, no longer lasting than a flash of lightning, as a fifth great element, a sixth component, a seventh sense media, a thirteenth sense media, Thus does the Bodhisattva regard living beings. As forms in the world of formlessness. So these are all impossible things. As sprouts from charred grain. As mistaken views of the body in one who has entered the stream that leads to the state of an arahant. As a re-entering of the womb by one no longer subject to rebirth. As the three poisons of greed, anger, and ignorance present in an arahant. An arahant is someone who has completed the path and purified the mind. As greed, anger, or violation of the precepts on the part of a bodhisattva who has seen the birthless nature of all existence. As vestiges of desire in a fully awakened one. As forms seen by a blind person. As the breathing in and out of one immersed in the samadhi of utter tranquility. You might be able to relate to that a little bit as the tracks of a bird in the sky, as a child born to a barren woman, as desires in a phantom being, as sights in a dream after one has awakened, as the taking on of a bodily form by one who has entered ultimate extinction, as fire that has no smoke. Thus does the Bodhisattva regard living beings. There's one they left out that's in the uh, Tibetan translation, uh, the erection of a eunuch. I always like that one, the erection of a eunuch. Manjushri said, if the Bodhisattva looks on beings in this way, how can he treat them with compassion? 
that's the question, isn't it? How can he treat them with compassion? teacher of mine said, bodhicitta is the ongoing fabric of being itself. Such statements arouse argument. Consider that. Bodhicitta, compassion, awakening, is the ongoing fabric of being itself. Just roam back over your life or the lives of others and see if that's a hard pill to swallow. But what appears when we're not stuck on ourselves? How many different ways does that shine? Aspiration and fulfillment are intimate. Aspiration and fulfillment are intimate. When you full-bloodedly vow, pray, train for bodhicitta, who's doing the vowing, the praying, the training? Who died and made you the boss? Who's doing the vowing, the praying, the training? Uh, From the Blue Cliff Record. It's a collection of uh, koans. Oh, I have it. Did I drop something? Oh. Oh, thank you. The 89th case, this is called The Hands and Eyes of the Bodhisattva of Great Compassion. So you may have seen on the altar, the work altar, there's this uh, image of many, many arms. I don't know how many are on our actual statue, maybe couple hundred, and uh, each of the arms has a different implement, you know, a hammer, or a wheel of dharma, or a sutra book, or food, or water, and it symbolizes all the different possible ways that compassion can manifest. I was at, um, I was in Nara, in Japan. I believe that's the ancient capital. And in one of the first Buddhist temples that was ever founded in Japan. And there's this very beautiful, very large, probably, I don't know, 20 foot tall wooden statue of Avalokiteshvara, Kanon, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, uh, with all her implements. And it was very interesting. The feeling of being around that statue was, was, um, was special. It was, it was, the atmosphere was charged. And I thought of all the people who have come through and all the many, 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 many years, all the travails that the Japanese have gone through and stood in front of that statue and been touched and been moved and been reminded and uh, the ambiance of that. So the hands and eyes of the Bodhisattva of Great Compassion. Um, All of these koans uh, begin with uh, the pointer. And the pointer is the compiler or 
sometimes a later commentator uh, helping us get what the koan is about. Because I know myself, I often read them or work on them and go way off track. And I'm really confused about what the real point is. And that has its fruit because just engaging with these deeper uh, questions, it, it affects us. Uh, but e each one uh, has a distinct offering. There's a reason that, for example, there are a hundred different koans in the Blue Cliff Record. So the, pointer, the pointers are rich and the pointers um, are doing just that. If your whole body were an eye, you still wouldn't be able to see it. If your whole body were an ear, you still wouldn't be able to hear it. If your whole body were a mouth, you still wouldn't be able to speak it. If your whole body were mind, you still wouldn't be able to perceive it. Now leaving aside whole body for the moment, if suddenly you had no eyes, how would you see? Without ears, how would you hear? Without a mouth, how would you speak? Without a mind, how would you perceive? In one of uh, Rujing Dogen's teacher's records, he says, if you want to truly see, you have to gouge out your eyes. What is he talking about? It's not like Zen machoism. If you want to truly hear, you have to go deaf. What is that talking about? That's exactly the point of Zazen. Without a mind, how would you perceive? Here, if you can unfurl a single pathway, then you'd be a fellow student with the ancient Buddhas. But leaving aside studying for the moment, under whom would you study? Who's your real teacher? Who's the real teacher? And here's the, the main case. And I apologize in advance uh, for my limited understanding of this koan, but I move to talk about it. Yun-yen asked Dao-wu, what does the Bodhisattva of great compassion use so many hands and eyes for? Why does he have to ask that? It's obvious that people have difficulties. It's obvious that people suffer, that old age, sickness, and death afflict people. Isn't that straightforward? What does he use it for? What is he asking? Who is asking? What does the Bodhisattva of great compassion use so many hands and eyes for? Wu replied, it's like someone reaching back, groping for a pillow in the middle of the night. What does the Bodhisattva of great compassion use so many hands and eyes for? It's like someone reaching back, groping for a pillow in the middle of the night. Is he merely saying it's natural? Yeah, don't, don't, don't get all caught up in love and compassion. That's just kind of everyday thing, right? Someone falls, you extend them a hand. So what? Is he merely saying it's instinctual? Um, 
funny, this uh, reaching back, groping for a pillow in the middle of the night, I used to sleep with somebody, and in the middle of the night, I would take their pillow. <laughs> I really wanted a pillow. I'm into the cold side of the pillow. When it gets too warm, I can't really sleep. So I, I grope for the, the, the cool side of the pillow. And I'd wake up, and they would tell me, actually, did you know that you snatched the pillow away from me as we were sleeping? That's pretty natural. It's like someone reaching back, groping for a pillow in the middle of the night. This is in response to someone asking, what is compassion? What is great compassion? And the response is, it's like someone reaching back, groping for a pillow in the middle of the night. He's responding to the place this very question springs from. And the student said, Yen, uh, Yen, the student said, I understand. Who understands? And who is better off not understanding? So the student said, I understand. And as a good Zen teacher is charged to do, he said, how do you understand it? How do you understand it? And Yen said, all over the body are hands and eyes. All over the body are hands and eyes. It's like someone reaching back, groping for a pillow in the middle of the night. Oh, I get that. What do you get? All over the body are hands and eyes. I recently read that the philosopher Wittgenstein said, life is lived forwards, but only understood backwards. That reminds me of Dogen's Zenji's life is one continuous mistake. Life is lived forwards, but only understood backwards. Bodhicitta, the ongoing fabric of life itself. Genocide? Young widows? Hungry children? These two? Is there one that can tenderly, brokenheartedly, lucidly say, these two? These two? Yen said, all over the body are hands and eyes. And Dao Wu, his teacher said, you have said quite a bit there, but you've only said 80% of it. What is that? What is that pointing at? You've only said 80%. The whole thing has not been expressed. The whole thing has not been manifested. That's not the whole story. Saying is like reaching for a pillow in the middle of the night. Not saying is like reaching for a pillow in the middle of the night. 
You've said quite a bit there, but you've only said 80% of it. And Yen said, well, what do you say? And he said, Dao Wu, throughout the body are hands and eyes. Throughout the body are hands and eyes. And he says, 80%. So we've raised sparks. We've raised holy sparks. We've interrupted what is good to interrupt. We've made a little room for it to shine through. The sun enters into a room with even the thinnest opportunity. Someone said that bodhisattvas don't take time off. There's no day off for a bodhisattva. And practice life is like a period of zazen with no beginning we can trace and no end that we come to. It's continual practice. Continual practice. When is that a burden and when does that lift us from our burden? Zen is a posture of the heart. It's a state of mind. It's an aspiration that never need be separated from. Never need be separated from. But we do. We compartmentalize. We do it when we're here, and we not do it when we're there. So the deep grace that however long we wander, the Dharma is, is here. Dharma is here for our empowerment, for our appreciation. And when we really appreciate the Dharma, Dharma crosses borders. It's a matter of course. So we had this little retreat, which is not over. I hope you have not gone home yet. I have this little retreat and Where are we in the vastness of the Buddha Dharma? Who could tell us? And as the Buddha said, the Dharma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. But that's dependent on practice, so please uh, keep sparking.